Will you pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, we open our hearts and our minds to receive your word this morning. We ask that you would reveal yourself both in us and especially through your word today. Lord, help us to uh, understand more about you and more about what it is you'd have us learn. We thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that you'll open it to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's a very old Joni Mitchell song called Big Yellow Taxi that I hear on the radio every now and again, and uh, it laments the things that we've lost. And one of the lines that always sticks out in my mind is, she says, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? And then it says, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. <laughs> Another verse says, they took all the trees and they put them in a tree museum and charged all the people a dollar and a half just to see them. I want to sing that when I hear that. But, you know, it's a, there's kind of a, a thing that's going on there. You know, even in our corrupted and fallen world, we still recognize a longing for the paradise that we've lost and the paradise that we are in the process of losing. There's a longing in our heart for something that is missing. There's a realization that, that this isn't really the way it's supposed to be. Even when it's very, very good, we still sense in our hearts that there's something better out there. We just haven't put our finger on it yet. Uh, several years ago, the band U2 released a song that received a lot of uh, criticism from Christians. Uh, Bono sang, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And, and all kinds of Christians jumped all over that. They said, well, what, is, what do you mean he still hasn't found it? He found Jesus, didn't he? Jesus is the mountain peak of all there is. But I think we Christians, both because of God's word and deep in our hearts, we know that there's more to come, that we're incomplete, and there's more than this life as we know it right now. Even though we have Jesus and life with Jesus is way better than life without Jesus, we recognize there's something more. There, we're not there yet. The good work that he began in us, it says, he is going to carry to completion. God will finish his work in us. And, and that time of completion, that day when everything will be done, when both we and the world will see a new day, is what Revelation 21 and 22 are all about. We're in the last couple of weeks of our series, Famous Last Words, uh, studying in Revelation. And it's been a long journey. It's been an interesting time. We started this two years ago. Uh, we did a short study on the seven churches of Revelation, and then last year, in the beginning of the year, we spent the first part of the year looking at the first half of Revelation, and we picked that up after Easter this year, and uh, we are on the last chapter. We're right at the very end. Um, we're looking at Revelation 22, and I want to look at two things today. Uh, this first part of Revelation 22 suggests a recreation of the Garden of Eden. And, and I want to look at two things today. I want to look at, at, I want to start with Eden lost, Eden as God created it, because, you know, I think like this song, we need to understand what we've lost, uh, what we had, but it's now gone because of the fall. And, and you know, I, I think you don't really feel the full pain of what you lost until you realize what you had, you know, when you really think about it. I think we need to look at the old Eden to give us a perspective 
on the new Eden that God is promising in Revelation chapter 22. So let's, let's start with Eden lost. What was Eden? What was it that God created? Genesis 1 tells us of God creating the earth. He created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. The earth itself, the sky, the water, the land, the birds, the fish, the animals, the other creatures, and the humans. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. And the earth was vast, and it was beautiful, and it was filled with glorious life. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there's that word we learned a couple of weeks ago. The word is tov. Uh, you're probably familiar with the, 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 the Yiddish expression, masel tov. And uh, the tov part, luck, good luck, or good, rather, good luck. Tov means goodness or good. And, and it has a sense about it of being complete and in order. God says at the end of Genesis 1 that it was not only good, it was very tov. It was complete. It was running the way it was intended to be. It was working in perfect goodness. One summer, I, I worked with a paving crew, and uh, man, was I buff then. Bonnie can tell you. <laughs> you hear that up there? <laughs> The driver that I was paired with, my partner Mike, he was also a guy I went to school with, and uh, he had this word that he liked to use over and over. He would say, everything is copacetic. I think he said it because he thought it made him sound more intelligent. But he said it way too often, and the more he said it, I think the less intelligent he sounded. But it is a good word, copacetic. Copacetic means in good order. When we started chapter 2 in Genesis, everything is copacetic. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that after this beautiful work that God did, he rested, making the seventh day holy. And then it tells us the human story again, but it tells us in a whole lot more detail than it did in chapter 1. When God created mankind, God also created as part of that creating seven days, he created a special place for mankind, for humankind. And it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it separated into four headwaters. So you have this beautiful space that God created, the Garden of Eden. Now, Eden isn't specifically the garden. Eden is actually the region around the garden. But when we say Eden, we usually mean the Garden of Eden, don't we? Starting in Genesis 2.15, it says... The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. 
So we know as we continue the story, God creates Eve from a part of Adam, not from a rib, but from his side or from a part, it says in Hebrew. And, and we have this amazing kind of relationship and an amazing kind of place. What have we got here? Well, they have this beautiful place to live. And, and, you know, today, I don't know what it's like for you, but, you know, I have some nice-looking things in my neighborhood, but if I want to see something really spectacular, I usually have to get in my car and drive somewhere, or I have to get on an airplane and fly somewhere to see something really beautifully spectacular. But Adam and Eve, they lived right in it, right in the middle of it, right, right in the middle of God's beautiful, untouched creation. Now, before you ask... I want to say, yes, I really believe in a literal Adam and Eve. Now, the reason I do is because Jesus and Paul and the other biblical writers, they speak of Adam and Eve as real persons, real characters. Uh, you know, when Jesus is telling a parable or a myth or an allegory or some fiction to make a point, he, he makes it clear that the story is an example. Uh, he, he doesn't do that when he refers to Adam and Eve. He takes them as real people. And when we get to Revelation 22, of course, when we're talking about Eden, John is speaking of a new Eden in very literal terms, a real place. And if I believe in that Eden, then I have to believe in the first one. You know, the Bible is a journey from creation to recreation. You can't recreate what wasn't created in the first place. And so... That's where I'm at, if you wondered where I'm at with this. So Adam and Eve lived in this beautiful place, and they had all the food that they would ever need. It was already provided for them. They had meaningful work. They were stewards of God's creatures, and they were to care for them. And there was a harmonious relationship with the animals, with these creatures. And they lived near the presence or in the presence of the tree of life. So that means that Adam and Eve had eternal life. They had life forever. And most important of all here in the garden, they had a close face-to-face -face relationship with God, their creator. They had all of that, and then they lost it. Then it was gone. Genesis 3, just like this passage in chapter 2, reminds us that this first couple were told from the very beginning that they couldn't eat from one tree. They could eat all of the others, but they could not eat from this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, they weren't even allowed to touch it, it says. If they did, they would die. Along came the serpent. And we know serpent here is Satan. Um, you know, I, I've heard people say, well, how do you know that was Satan? It was just a serpent. You know, it was just this snake or, or, or some other kind of serpent, you know? But we're told in the book of Revelation, the identity of the serpent, that he is very specifically Satan, or, or to be very literal, the Satan. He is the deceiver. That's what his name means. Fallen angel, formerly known as Lucifer. He tempted Eve into not only touching the tree, but picking some fruit and eating the fruit. Satan, to get her to do that, directly contradicts what God says and puts some doubt in Eve's mind about God's authority, questions his authority. You're not really going to die if you eat that. Did he really say that? 
And he tells her that if she eats it, she won't die, but she's going to be like God. God's holding back on you. He's not giving you everything. He's giving you all this other stuff. But look, at he kept the best stuff for himself. He doesn't want you to eat that because if you eat that fruit, you're going to be like God. So Eve eats the fruit. By the way, the fruit was not an apple. Uh, in Jewish and Muslim theology and mythology, the fruit was quince. I don't know if you've ever eaten quince. We, used to, we had a quince uh, bush or tree at the edge of our property when we lived in New Cumberland before we moved to Waynesboro. And, and um, I'll leave you to ponder this, you know, what would be tempting about that, because quince tastes awful if you bite it. You know, the only way you can eat quince is if you cook it for a long time, and then the sweetness actually comes out, and there's this aromatic smell to it, but by itself, if you eat it, it's terrible. It's bitter, and yeah. So anyway, I don't know if it really was quince, but that's the legend. Eve gave some of this fruit to Adam, who was, it says, there with her. There's no excuse for Adam. You know, we always say, well, it's the woman's fault. Well, no, it says Adam was right there with her when all of this took place, and he didn't do anything about it. He doesn't even speak. It says that he ate it, and immediately they were aware of good and evil. Now, they didn't die physically right in that moment, but they endured spiritual death. It severed this spiritual tie between them and God. Physical death was introduced, and, and they were created to live forever, but eventually they die physically as well, and that becomes part of the curse. They'd been living in blessing from God, but now because of their sin of disobedience, they live under curse. The curse took away a lot of the really great things that they had, and it forced them to live a whole lot harder life than they were used to. Think of sin kind of as the ultimate pandemic. It spread from person to person through generation after generation until all generations were touched. All of humanity experienced spiritual death and disconnection from God. And it wasn't until the coming of the Holy Spirit when people received Jesus that humans began to spiritually live again. That's why Jesus talks about being born again. It's their spirit is being reborn. We are dead in sin, but we are made alive in Christ. The curse was pronounced by God. For Eve and for all the women who would be born after her, all her descendants, the pains of childbirth, which it seems were supposed to be mild, they became severe. The equality of relationship that men and women were intended to have, this partnership under God, became more adversarial. It says now Adam will rule over Eve, and, and we have men ruling over women. Because of the disobedience, God told Adam that the ground would be cursed, and raising food from it would be very painful work. He also told them that someday he was going to die. He was made from dust, the soil of the earth. In fact, um, you know, Adam's name means earth or soil or dirt. Don't laugh, ladies. <laughs> the first man was called dirt. <laughs> and he would return to the earth as dust, it says. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. You know where that comes from, right? We use that in a funeral service. 
God covered their nakedness with skins. Now, now think about this for a second in terms of what does that do for human and animal relations? <laughs> you know, they've lived in harmony with the animals up until this point, And now they're walking around covered with animal skins. And God banishes them from the garden. And they had to go into the real world and get a job. Human lives got shorter and shorter. And communication with God got less and less. In fact, it became so scarce that mostly only prophets, special people, could hear God's voice. The old original Eden, this paradise that God created, it was now beyond their reach. They couldn't get it. It was guarded by angels with fiery swords, and in fact, it disappears into history so that nobody knows where it ever really sat. We have a general idea, but we really don't know specifically. You know, sin was already starting to corrupt. Even in that first generation, the next generation, we have the first murder. So we started with this very pure and this very beautiful thing, this gorgeous paradise without sin, without any kind of corruption, and within a generation, we see the first murder. So much was lost when Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God. So let's, I want to jump now from the first chapter of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible, to the New Eden. Revelation 22 happens after Jesus has returned. New Jerusalem has come down out of heaven, dressed like a bride, it says, covered in finery, uh, you know, sort of the same as God's people, a chapter earlier, dressed for the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the very first thing that God does is restore the most important thing that was lost in the fall. That's the direct relationship with his people, the way it was intended to be, but even better. You know, we read in, in Genesis that, you know, God was in the habit of walking in the garden and meeting with them. You know, that was their meeting time, their meeting place where they, they saw God face to face. And that was occasional, or at least at some specific part. It wasn't continuous. But now, in Revelation 22, it says... God is not only face-to-face -face with his people, they can see him all the time, not just some of the time. And according to what we learned in Revelation 21, it says God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. Revelation 22, it suggests a new Eden is created here, a new garden right in the middle of the city of the New Jerusalem. You know, I, sometimes it makes me, you know, sort of pause when I hear about some of you guys raising chickens in your backyard in the middle of town, right? Well, here's this entire massive, incredible, beautiful garden right smack in the middle of the city. A new Eden is created. Let's look at that. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. 
and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. You remember all those things that Adam and Eve lost? All those beautiful things? All those gorgeous things? Everything lost will now be coming for God's people. Their sin, Adam and Eve's sin, passed the curse onto the rest of humanity and even onto the earth, causing the earth to be corrupted till it says in the scriptures that the earth cries out for redemption. But a new earth has been created here. A new earth and a new Jerusalem and a new Eden. Now, right in the middle of the city, right out of the throne of God, it says there is the most perfect river you have ever seen, just flowing out from the throne and from the throne of Jesus. It's the river of life. Remember that old chorus? And I've got a river of life flowing out. You know, that comes from here. The river of life. Before, there was a river from Eden that flowed into the garden and watered it. Now, we have the river of life flowing out from the throne of God to water the rest of the earth. It's moving in the opposite direction. Adam and Eve and all their descendants were banished from the tree of life. They weren't allowed to live forever anymore. But now, the tree of life is available to everyone. In fact, it, it, uh, it says the tree of life is on both sides of the river, which is kind of cool. I don't know if it bridges the river or how that works exactly. It symbolizes... Along with the water, it symbolizes eternity. And, and, and the water, here's the, it's like the pure, clear purity of God's presence right there. And the tree, uh, all this is accessible now to everyone who believes in and receives Jesus. And we will live forever. See, that's eternal life. That's, that's what that's about. It says the tree bears 12 kinds of fruit. You think we've got 12 apostles, we've got 12 tribes of Israel that are the foundation also of the new Jerusalem. Now we have 12 fruits also for 12 months. It says at the end of each month, the, you know, we have to wait whole seasons to get fruit. You know, I waited a long time for those tomatoes, you know, and, and that bacon and tomato sandwich, it was months in the making. But it says here that every single month, the tree bears fruit. There's constantly a supply of food. It never goes away. It never stops. And you don't have to wait for a season. And it says the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, now think about healing here for a second. All our broken relationships, our personal ones, our national ones, our international ones, the nations will no longer be at war with one another. We'll have spiritual nourishment continuously and peace. And it says the light of God will shine on us forever. There's no more curse. It's gone. 
Now, it says the name of God will be on their foreheads. Ours, if we're there. In fact, nobody will not wear God's name. There's a good double negative for you. And we will serve him together where we can see his face all the time. All the time. So same question as I asked last week. Who gets to experience this? Who gets to do this? Who gets to go and live in this beautiful place? Who gets to see and experience God in this incredible way? Well, you do. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe that he's the son of God, that he died for your sins, rose again on the third day, if you repent and turn from your sin, and if you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, you get to experience this. This is what the promise of eternal life really means. This is where it's at. And the invitation is open to all of us, to you and me. All we have to do is ask. Ask, receive forgiveness, receive eternal life. Now, you know, maybe, I don't know where your relation's at with God right at the moment, but, you know, if you find yourself right now maybe feeling a little bit distant from God, it's sort of the same process, isn't it? We need to repent of our cold hearts and our distance, and we need to welcome Jesus back into our lives again. You can ask him to refresh you. I don't know about you, there are days I really need refreshment. You know? You can ask him to refresh you, to bring your spiritual life alive again, to breathe life on the coals and fan them into flame and fire. What we hope for is something amazing. It's what we see here in Revelation 22. We're going to look more at it and finish it up next week. But, but there is this beautiful, concrete hope, this thing that we don't even have to envision it in our heads as much as it's already laid out before us in the page. This beautiful place. Now, it's not going to be about, as we've said several times now, it's not about sitting around on clouds and playing harps and, you know, basically doing nothing. Oh, praise God. Another day the same. I don't think any day is going to be the same with God. I think it's going to be incredible. And it all comes to us if we receive Christ. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence here among us today. We look forward to a time when there is no limit of time and no limit of time that we can spend with you in your direct presence. And Lord, I, I long to see your face. I long to be fully restored, to be the person you intended when you created me. And, and right now, sometimes things are painful and unfair, and sometimes we really struggle with our sin nature. And sometimes we hurt so bad because of the death of people that we love. But we hope in a day when all that pain and struggle and death and sin is gone. And there's no more crying. Lord, we can't wait till we stand face to face with you before your throne. And Lord, this morning, 
we present our hearts to you and ask you to forgive our sin. Fill us with your Holy Spirit to empower us to live for you. Breathe on us, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you are the breath of God. Breathe on us and transform us. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.